0: Hey, welcome to Being Creative. My name is Rick Leaf. As you know, I'm the host of this show, where I love to delve deep into the uncomfortable underbelly of a creative life and the shared moments I've experienced along the way that most people describe as not being appropriate for polite conversation. (laughs) So I hope you didn't come here for polite conversation, because it isn't going to happen. (laughs) Oh, for today's episode of Being Creative, we're diving into midnight confessions from religious leaders, oh, you're going to love this, and the uncomfortable conversation that you will find yourself in if you are lucky enough to find your voice. Oh, this is a good one, and one I'm quite passionate about um confirmed analytics i should just mention have pushed us over the threshold and i am over the moon to let you know that this podcast has uh reached the pinnacle of five yes five listeners so uh i promise i'm gonna try not to let it go to my head (laughs) but uh hey let's jump right into this uh week's episode Well, let's start with an idle observation. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever heard of this—that uh, what we think is normal, somebody else uh, will find amazing. And like many people, for years I didn't think my life or experiences would actually interest anyone else. Um, for that very reason, it just—it's what it was just normal to me. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you don't fit into your box? You know, could be the box you built for yourself through expectations or uh, preconceived ideas built around your gender, your privilege, your financial situation, your relationships. Uh, At at one point, I tried to describe the box of my formative years in a book I wrote called uh, Four Homeless Millionaires um and I titled the chapter the Sacrilegious Spirit in the embryonic soup <laughs> but when the local library ordered a copy and put it on the shelves somebody from the little town complained that it was hate literature Here, why don't I just quickly read (laughs) A page from that book uh, to let you in on what they thought was so offensive. We're in Three Hills, Alberta. This is from the chapter. We're in Three Hills, Alberta, the incredibly small town I grew up in. In many ways, Three Hills is a very typical small prairie town. Downtown is three blocks long. There's one main street with a postage stamp post office, one grocery store, two gas stations, and a tavern. A couple of grain elevators and an ancient water tower are the only structures that rise above the prairie fields. But what makes Thrill's a wild and crazy place is the religious institution known since its inception in the 1920s as Prairie Bible Institute. The road that runs in from Highway 21 splits the little town perfectly down the middle. To the south is a sleepy little prairie town, and to the north is Prairie Bible Institute, the brainchild of L.E. Maxwell, the Orwellian despot and founding father of the faithful flock. (laughs) I, I love that line so much. I love alliteration, but I also love Orwellian despot. When did I come up with that? Growing up on the south side of the tracks, my friends and I abbreviated PBI to Peebs. (laughs) Oh, so juvenile. A tonal designation we use to describe staff and students from the Institute. I still don't think it's like hate literature. But anyway, my family straddled the divide, so to speak. My grandparents taught at Prairie. Both my parents attended high school and Bible school there. And the pastor of our small community church was a professor at the institute. I had a sneaking suspicion growing up that I was actually part of a nurture versus nature sociology experiment like Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places, if it it meets Stanley Milgram in Roswell, New Mexico. One thing is certain, Threels was a fertile field for my irreverent imagination, and I can honestly say that I would not be the man I am today without the experience. It's why I think the great stork in the sky inseminated my sacrilegious spirit into the embryonic soup. (laughs) Okay, man, I don't know. I think that was a pretty good opening line to a chapter. I I would want to read that. But, Anyways... That box of my youth was conservative, small town, you wouldn't be entirely wrong to toss in redneck and uber-religious, raised in a box with a world view defined by who we were against. And honestly, we were against almost everyone and everything, Uh, even women weren't supposed to wear makeup, you know? So what was a young boy like myself to do? Secretly stash my foundation and eyeliner like contraband. That's what. (laughs) Oh, what a place. What a box. Uh, I had a few defining moments in that experience though that really um, played uh, very pivotal roles in, in looking back on how I began to realize, um, say myself, my potential, uh, my lack of potential, um, and the, the, uh, the real importance of the, of the environment that we grow up in. Um, there's one story I totally remember, um, I, my, my siblings are much older than me, and so I was uh, probably in you know, late uh, elementary school age, and my brother would have come back for the summer from university and brought a friend, and they were there for the two months working probably, and then they went back to university in September, and I went down into my parents' basement, and in the corner somewhere, I found this drum kit never seen a drum kit, and nobody played it that whole summer. Like, I didn't ever see it or hear it until I was all by myself down in the basement. And I I was just like, so drawn to this. And I pulled it all out. And, you know, this is way before YouTube when you could just like, you know, go to YouTube and search how to set up a drum kit. Uh, I figured out how to do it, set it all up, sat down, found some sticks, put a little, you know, grabbed a little stool Pulled it up behind this drum kit and immediately started playing the crap out of this drum kit. Like I just had a natural affinity, great sense of rhythm, just got it, locked into it. And uh, it was clearly like a a talent, like that was a gift. I didn't work on it, never had a lesson, just was immediately able to play it. Which is amazing, right? eleven years old, and and the confidence that you get from trying something and succeeding, whatever the there was only a problem there was only like a small problem we We were in a community that was also against drums because among everything else and everyone else, drums of course raised demons uh, based in these fantastical stories of missionaries um, which Would be amazing just for me to be able to uh, rant for a second about that. There was a story that circulated, and I don't know what box you uh, spent, you know, what boxes you've spent in your life. If you were in a religious, evangelical type box like I was, you may have heard this story yourself. But as this story goes, this uh, um, missionary comes back from Africa, of course. And he starts doing the circuit Uh, in his year of furlough. This is where missionaries come back to North America and they start going around week after week preaching in all these little churches to drum up money and support and get people to start sending the money so that at the end of that year, they can go back over and, and start plaguing the world with themselves in some other part of the world. And so as the story goes, this missionary comes to this church and he walks in and this youth band, or maybe it's just the worship band, or I don't know who they are, but they're on the stage playing. There's a drummer... Can you believe it? Not just a pipe organ and a piano, a drummer playing in this worship band. And the as the story goes, this missionary, his eyes, or, you know, the color drains out of his face. I'm just thinking now I'm going to elaborate a bit because I love stories. But, you know, he, he has this incredible moment. He turns to whoever, the pastor or, or somebody, and he's just like, what is happening? What is going on here? That drum beat is the same beat that the pagan Africans used to raise demons, you know, in the, <laughs> oh man. Uh, so if you grew up in a church like mine, you definitely would have heard some version of that story. And that was one of the stories that was told uh, as justification for why drums would never be allowed in our churches. And I remember going off, um, <laughs> <laughs> to my parents at some point in my young adult life I heard this story one too many friggin times and uh, I remember just saying to my like who who is this guy who is this missionary who what's his name what, what church was this? If it, real people have names. So who is this guy? What church was he at? What drums were they playing? What kind of a guy is he? Like, do you even know him? Does he, like, pay his taxes? Does he cheat on his taxes? Does he cheat on his wife? Does he beat his kids? Does he kick his dog? Is he the kind of person, if he's even real, is he the kind of person that you would respect in any opinion or action in his life? Or is he just some frigging straw man made up to... Uh, perpetuate and give a uh, uh, authority to our biases and our kind of bs and, and i was <laughs> i remember just catching a full uh sail the wind f- of uh, you know in you know righteous indignation filled my sails as i my lips were flapping in the breeze kicking up dust and great billowing gusts as i like told my parents how much i hated this uh <laughs> thank you for being there by the way for that little rant i'm not sure it has anything to do well no it does okay it does because i had this natural affinity for drums um which was also you know i know my parents were excited and happy for me they let me play down in the basement for sure but in that community it's almost like a secret it's almost like a dirty secret that our kid is really good and and we're never going to, like, I had to go play trombone and I had to play, I remember playing xylophone. And this, I mean, I remember doing, I'm reciting, oh my gosh, my grandma was part of the Christian women's temperance or abstinence, uh, Uh, some kind of a group you know old ladies against drinking or something and and i at some little tiny age way before puberty i was like uh, entered into this um this public speaking contest which i apparently won for this anti-drinking poem (laughs) (laughs) that i was forced to uh memorize and recite in public but anyways oh my gosh what a box what a box anyways i remember in this community now i'm older i'm out of high school i think and um and i'm still in the community i'm working and still loving playing drums and i start playing drums in this rock and roll band just Playing in rodeos and and bars and clubs and festivals and whatever you know, classic. And uh, I remember this church deacon uh, wanted to take me out for coffee, so we go out for coffee and we're we're doing whatever. And then we get in his truck, and I just remember we're driving through the prairies, kind of around outside our little town, just driving past fields. And this guy finally gets to the point for this coffee meeting, which is that he believed that I was dishonoring God by playing drums in a rock and roll band, and the guys I'm playing in the rock and roll band with are, you know, the guy that works at the hardware store and the guy that you know, works at the tire star- store, and and they're just local dudes, and the people we're playing for are the people that own the grocery store and are the bank manager, and I mean it's like so small town, it's hilarious. Anyways. I'm like, really? Well, so where should I play? You, do you want me to just drag my drum kit in and set it up on the, on the church stage and start playing on Sunday mornings? Is that what you want me to do? I knew he didn't want me to do that. And he thinks about it for a bit, and then he, he concludes, well, no, you know, that wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> Maybe you should learn to play a different instrument and I was I just lost it on this dude. I totally remember. I'm like, "You just said <laughs> you thought I you believe I have a god-given talent uh, that I'm dishonoring by playing this rock and roll band and now you want me to take my god-given talent on this instrument and learn to play a different instrument that I don't have a talent or a gift for." And I I started to realize in this moment that if boxes comfort some people. They have always been claustrophobic to me. Now, I'm sure all five of you who are listening have your own complicated relationship with the boxes you've inherited or built for yourself. And and by boxes, of course, I mean lives we're meant to inhabit. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's tense. It's constricting. It's conflicting. Uh, Because stories are powerful. You know, years ago, I came up with this little phrase that I like to use for short videos online where it's like, you know, something happens, it means nothing. We make up a story for what it means. The story creates our world, the world creates our reality and what is and isn't possible. And I think that's why uh, the stories that we tell ourselves are so powerful because it creates this world and this reality. And I know I've talked to you before about the the guy who told me it was a preacher, but just, you know, I think there's a new person. Maybe the new person hasn't heard it a million times. <laughs> so I'm going to quickly tell you again. You know, I was living in Winnipeg, and I I pitched this idea about engaging the emerging electorate to the member of Winnipeg, Judy Wasa-Shaliz, who was the um, member of Parliament for Winnipeg North at the time. And she lived around the corner from me, and we lived in an area of the city where there was Lots of different ethnic groups. Uh, There were lots of artists because it was like a poorer area of Winnipeg so that we could afford homes there if we didn't have a lot of money. So it was very diverse, really interesting, very artistic people living in this neighborhood, in our neighborhoods. But it was also an area of the city that had uh, no art galleries, no um, coffee shops, you know, uh, no local pubs, so there was nowhere where you would like have live original music, or you'd have poetry night, slam poetry, or or book readings. There was no place to you know go see an art show or, or anything. We were just used to leaving our neighborhoods as to go have a cultural experience somewhere else. And so this idea of can we use culture to create a sense of community in our neighborhoods, that was the gist of it. And I made this pitch to the Member of Parliament, and she said, yeah, I really love this idea. Neither one of us wanted to start any of those things. We didn't have time or energy or money to do that. So she said, you know what What we should do? uh, I'll host a house concert at my place, and you be the performer. And let's just start that way and see kind of whether it has any traction with the neighborhood. So that's what we did. And the people, the, the first dozen or so people that came into this house you know, after we've all set up and we're ready to go and I'm really excited. And the first dozen people through the door are like senior citizens. And I mean, seriously, senior citizens, like oxygen tanks and walkers and wheelchairs. And I freak out because at that time, I'm like, I don't do music that this demographic is going to enjoy. And all I could think was, And of course, I just described where I came from, you know, the box of of, uh, the prairies, the religious prairies. Elderly people, gray-haired people at that time in my life for sure represented that old guard in the church that was always judging and against everything and everyone, including me. So it pushes all my buttons. I kind of have a, like an invisible um, <laughs> mental uh, freak-out session where I'm just like, everybody's going to hate my music. They're going to actually leave. They're going to hate it so much that they're going to get up and leave. And the member of parliament is going to see her electorate and her voting you know, constituency leaving, and she's going to regret ever wanting anything to do with me— this is all happening probably between one sip (laughs) of Cabernet Sauvignon and the next. So I came up with this strategy in my head in that moment. I thought, well, I'll explain every song and why I wrote it and what inspired it. And even if they don't like the music, they'll understand where it came from. Maybe they'll preach that, or maybe they'll appreciate that. So I just over-explained every single story all night long. And, you know, we were having a good time anyways. Overall, the house was packed. seemed like everybody had a good time. It was the next day that this guy, Bob, uh, gives me a call out of the blue. I didn't know him. I found out. He invited me over to his house, had something to say, so I walked around the corner to his house at 2 o'clock, and we poured another glass of wine, went down into the uh, basement of this massive library, and he was a political cartoonist, and he'd written a book, and he was a uh, a, uh, a retired United Church minister and uh, wrote for um, did these... Um, illustrations like cartoons for canadian dimension magazine really interesting guy and he says to me rick I'm on my way back from the the party last night the house concert i told my partner you know that kid's a preacher and i thought it was a really weird thing to say uh, and then he went on to explain you know that a preacher doesn't trust his audience a storyteller trust his audience to make the necessary connections. And he gave me all of the reason, like he gave me lots of really great examples from the night before where I was preaching and not trusting the audience. And he was just saying like, trust your audience, be a storyteller. That's one of the conversations as simple as it was just in some basement in the North end of Winnipeg changed my life um, because I hate preaching And I think preaching sucks. (laughs) And because of the boxes of my formative years, I've known a lot of preachers. And I think they're actually the only ones that really love preaching because they love the sound of their own voice. And almost more than anything, preaching is a medium where there's no pushback right there's no feedback nobody has an opportunity in a in a preaching scenario to say what is your source for that Wh- where did that come from can you back that up you know any of that kind of stuff so uh i endeavor when I'm deep diving into stories that fuel my creative process and insights to try not to uh, Tucker Carlson my way through life because, you know, (laughs) that guy's a giant douche and I'm glad he's out there. But I am glad he's out there. uh, So visibly uh, reminding me of who I would hate to be. So for today's episode, I have four stories uh, I would never have had if I wasn't not only an artist but the artist that I am and maybe more than that being or becoming the artist I feel like I was created to be because my career is anything but paint by the numbers and maybe your life and your story feels like it's never really fit into a a clearly defined box like we're presented uh it should be whether you know whether it's on LinkedIn or whatever it's like uh My life is kind of, it seems messy because it spills out of these uh, boxes, but um, uh, I think they would be fun stories to share, and I'll let you come to your own conclusions about all of that. So, speaking of preachers, let's start uh, story number one with the story of an East Coast preacher who called me into his office to make a startling confession. So I was on tour with uh, another singer-songwriter. And the two of us were were traveling. I believe that tour were on the East Coast of Canada, the Maritime Region. And we did this show in Prince Edward Island. And... Uh, after it was packed, it was kind of like a house concert, and uh, if you've never been to a house concert, I, I don't know what they are like. It's been years since I've I've done them, but uh, at the time they were really great. You know, I've been doing the big kind of rock shows with a big band, with Tribe of One, where we had dancers and painters and lots of musicians, and every show was a really big deal. And all of a sudden we just the pendulum swung, and we said, let's do house concerts or you know, really intimate things with maybe 30 or 40 people, 50 people, um, just acoustic guitars or piano and just an opportunity to share stories and tell stories uh, behind the music and the process and writing and the lyrics and maybe even have you know some question and answer period with the audience where they're able to... Um, you know ask different things could anything from the chord structure or playing or what tuning your guitars in or what inspired you to do that it was really fun and so we had one of these nights in PEI the first time I think I'd ever been there and a packed house everybody had a great time and uh I believe it was when we were leaving early in the morning like one one or two in the morning everything's done you've hung around and, and talked with people and had some wine and And this guy, um, who I found out was the pastor of this community, uh, said, could you stop by my office tomorrow morning before you leave town? So we don't know. I I assume every time a pastor wants to get together with me, I assume they want to, like, you know, get mad at me for something. Uh, or or say something like that. That was certainly at that time of my life, that was the go-to assumption that they, they had a problem with something I said or did, or just generally who I was. So I had no idea, but we agreed. And so we packed our stuff up the next day. We drove to his office. We walked in. And again, here, I don't know. This guy shuts the door. It's just the three of us in there. Two artists, me and the guy I'm touring with, and this pastor who I don't know. And he says... My church is successful. We're making tons of money. Lots of people got a great leadership team, blah, blah, blah. By any, every measure, uh, I'm successful and everything's going great. And I don't know if you've heard of Halt um, from, I I don't know whether it's from 12 Steps or 10 Steps. Oh, listen to me. I don't know where it comes from. Um, Hungry angry, lonely, and tired. Anybody know where that comes from? (laughs) Leave it in the comments. I don't know. I just remember that's what he said. It was some strategy for uh, maybe you're making bad decisions in your life or something. And this idea of halt, if if you're hungry, if you're angry, if you're lonely, if you're tired, identify that that's where your bad decision making is coming from. And he basically said The reason he asked us to get together with him was because he watched us do our show the night before, laughing, bantering with each other. Now, this is the relationship I have with the other artist is what he's describing. And he's like, I watched you. You genuinely had affection for each other. You respected each other. You loved each other. Um, You were having fun. You were bantering. And he's like... I have all of these other measurable, you know, ways of uh, success that would say that I'm a successful person, but I don't have that with anybody. I'm I'm lonely and I'm and, I, and there is nothing for me to say. I, I literally don't remember what I said or what the guy I was touring with said either. I just remember walking out kind of in silence, getting into our vehicle, driving to Halifax um, for our next show, kind of in silence because it was like, what was that all about? We, we've we heard, you know, if you're an artist, I mean, even if you're not an artist, you've heard the whole thing about a starving artist, right? What profession do people put this super negative uh, description, adjective before what you are? I'm an artist. Oh, yes. Yeah, starving artist. The idea of um, poverty, the idea of struggle, of lack of success. Here it is. We're driving down the road. Just a couple guys in a rental car with their acoustic guitars, sharing their stories night after night in living rooms with strangers. And this guy with this big, massive whatever kind of an organization, pulling in, you know, huge sums of money, one can only assume, (laughs) don't all churches, (laughs) looks at our life and says, you have something I don't and never have. A follow-up story that happened a few months later to start this story, I need to ask you if you've seen this movie, Babette's Feast. It was from the '80s. It was a, I believe, a Danish drama. Uh, the, it was set, you know, during the 19th century. This really strict religious community in, uh, uh, I don't remember where, a Danish village somewhere, a Jutland or something. Uh, they took in. This refugee from the Franco-Prussian War, and this woman, uh, they this this community, this religious community, they would eat this gruel, this kind of porridge, and uh, they it was flavorless, and and they they were kind of like the drudgery of the human existence was like the the worse this uh, porridge and this gruel was it was kind of like more that they believe god would um you know, bless them because they were suffering, i you know whatever, let's whatever so this this woman, this refugee that this community takes in, she starts making this porridge and this gruel, but she starts adding different things to try to make it a little more interesting, maybe I don't know if it was raisins or if it was spices or something to make it a little more flavorful and uh and they were kind of you know they loved it on a sensory level, but also this was like taking away from the misery that they believe God wanted in their life or something. Anyways, this, this, as the story goes, this woman leaves at some point and, uh, and then comes back with these, uh, I just remember the scene, it was like the water, the, the waves coming up on a, on a really kind of deserted beach. And it was these, these old kind of rowboat wooden rowboat things that some people are helping her come aboard and she's unloading just endless stuff. And, and, uh, we find out that, ba- this is Babette and she prepares this feast where she's, Um, gone and taken her inheritance whatever however many thousands of pounds her inheritance was she went and bought all this exotic food and these priceless bottles of wine because we find out later that she was a the like a a world-renowned chef from France and she'd fled the war and she went and she, and she brought back like tortoise and all of these, you know, bison and all these exotic meats and all these exotic foods. And she prepared them. And in, in this community there, I believe there was a, you know, this one guy, uh, I think he was a, um, a military guy who would who had, he was maybe the only person from the village who'd actually kind of traveled the world. And, he wasn't really part of their religious order, but he was invited to this feast because it was, you know, a community thing. And as this incredible food and this incredible wine is poured, as this woman gives her entire inheritance into this meal to bless this community for looking after her and do what, you know, blow their mind, they decide this religious community decides with each other between courses of meals, we won't say anything, we won't exclaim, we won't praise the chef, we won't do anything, like, we'll have to eat it, because it's here, but we we don't have to enjoy it, and we certainly don't have to say anything about it, and... Anyways, and the the military guy is just like this old guy is just like what is wrong with you people? This is the most amazing. This bite is whatever, and he's like, I've only ever had a meal that could even possibly compare to this, and it was at you know the the finest restaurant in Paris, and and whatever, and that's where we find out that this is who this woman is. I'm bringing this story of. Babette's Feast Up because I had this experience almost in real life and I have to be very careful in how I tell the story because this person (laughs) may not be one of the five people but they may drift into this podcast and uh, I certainly don't want to give away anything that would um, embarrass them but I was uh, I was on tour um, in western Canada and I was asked to fill in one last date on my way back from wherever I was on the West Coast back to Winnipeg, where I was living at the time. And I showed up, and this person who'd booked me was a fan. And it was their birthday, and they were living in this religious community in the prairies. And it was a big birthday for them. And I think maybe they knew that nobody in this religious community was going to throw them a party, so they threw themselves a party and they went and they bought you know the best food they could there was a chocolate fondue and there was sushi and there was this barbecue stuff and there was amazing desserts and it was this incredible spread and even though it was a religious community there was you know great wine and and drinks and it was this everything was laid out for this night and As the people came, many of them came late, straggled straggled in late to this concert. It was one of the few concerts at that time, I was touring with my business partner, um, and she's a a bass player. So we had a tiny little amp that could um, uh, amplify her bass, but we had no PA system, no microphones, just me and a guitar and MJ's bass in this living room. And all of these people show up for this um, this incredible spread, this birthday party. These religious people, not a single one of them brought a present, and maybe in the invitation it said not to, but nobody brought anything. Nobody brought wine. Nobody brought cookies or chips or anything. Nobody contributed anything. Many of them came late. Uh, here's this incredible spread, which I don't think in a little town in the prairies you would ever uh imagine it must have just represented hundreds if not you know a, th- a thousand bucks for this spread and then the the host who's done all of this to celebrate themselves but also to you know bring the community together says look uh U2 my favorite artist my favorite band uh Rick is my second so I'm so excited to have like, you know, my one of my favorite artists um, to come and and to play music while we eat all this. So please dish up, enjoy everything, grab drinks, enjoy everything. And we're we start to play and. Uh, obviously I said, Hey, I don't have a microphone. I don't have a PA system. So you just, it's going to be really vulnerable and it's going to be really uh, intimate here tonight. And as I start playing, uh, everybody starts talking. Like everyone starts talking to each other. They're just chatting. Like I don't even exist that we're not even there playing. And I'm kind of incredulous. And I'm looking over at MJ and we're just like, we can't even hear each other. And we're sitting right beside each other. And there's only so loud, I have a loud voice, but there's only so loud you can sing. And so we maybe did a song or two and the house is deafening. Like like it's a house party with nothing going on. So the host stands up and just says, hey, um, there's going to be lots of time for everybody to talk and, and catch up and chat and whatever, but... Rick and MJ are here. They've driven all the way here, um, to, to play some of my favorite music. Could we just listen to them for, you know, 45 minutes and, you know, whatever. No, the very next song by halfway through the next song, the din of the room is so loud. I can't even hear. And, For the sake of the host, I probably played more songs than I ever would at this point of my life. But I thought, these dicks, like these inconsiderate jerks, like what is wrong with them? And uh, (laughs) it was not lost on the host that they'd put everything into this night and nobody gave a rip. And if they didn't give a rip about me, they sure didn't, sure didn't give a rip about them. So we finish up, and it's time to go. And uh, we, we can't find the host, and when we finally do, they'd been drinking quite heavily to make it through the night, and uh, we got back to their house, and I will never forget this as long as I, I, I kind of almost knew this was going to happen, the, it was a beautiful, warm summer night in the prairies, and all the windows were open, and the curtains were f- were uh, just flowing in the breeze, and nobody turned on any lights, um, so it was just dark. The only light that was was the moon coming through the window, and this host starts confessing uh, how badly the church, how badly organized religion how badly the institution that they were working for at the time, how badly every part of this box, this world that they were part of had screwed them over. And then got to the, I knew it was coming and it was like this institution and this pastor and this leader. And eventually it's like, I feel like God fuck me over is what this person said. And I knew it was coming that way. And, and, you guys, there's a lot of ways that people described art, and I think my favorite is that art is a conversation with the artist. And so after I had spent a decade of writing vulnerable, broken, questioning, hopeful songs, so that anybody who listened to my music had been having that kind of a conversation with me, and I realized that is why this person from this religious Um, institution was having this conversation with me. It wasn't entirely unexpected or even unusual by that point, because uh, that box that I had left so long ago, uh, these people that are still in it, it's like these kinds of questioning, loneliness, uh, sense of failure and isolation and uh, brokenness and questions and whatever if you try to poke your head up in some of these boxes and and share some aspects of the story that you're in... Uh, yeah, you're shut down. You're you're kind of I, I've you know identified over the years that for people who love that box, who are comforted by that box, that kind of world, you're wrecking it for them. You're wrecking it by saying the the questions are bigger than this box. The problems are bigger than the solutions presented by this box. This box does not insulate me from the world that we've lived in, that we live in, and the experiences that we have. And you know. As ironic as it seems, I find myself in a completely different institution these days, having the same types of experiences, and I'd like to share one with you next. I've spent the last dozen or so years working in schools in the education um, system, and originally uh, doing music projects, which I still do, write school anthems with students, um, do lots of like slam poetry, uh, teaching slam poetry, and do lots of video production, media production. And sometimes they combine all three of those things together. It's a different institution and a system, but it's full of moments not really all that unsimilar to what I've just been describing. And I've learned that Uh, I can use my artistic voice, my creativity, to do two things. One, to start real conversations with students about life, about pain and struggle and loneliness and depression and excitement and hope and insecurity. Basically, the human condition. And two... I do that by encouraging every student when I walk in to recognize that they're authors of their own story, and there's value in sharing their story, no matter what chapter they're in. Same for you, you know, all five of you that are listening. Th- we're so used to going uh, like the the positive, upbeat, the success stories that that's what we want to share because it makes us look good and feel good. And some people can relate to that, or maybe some people, no, some people can be inspired by that. A lot of people can't even relate to levels of success and accolades and whatever, because they haven't had any, or they haven't had any for so long, but you start sharing your struggles and your, your problems that you're facing and how you're facing them and that kind of aspect of like, man, I feel lonely, I feel hungry, I'm angry, I'm tired. Looking back at that pastor on the East Coast who asked us to come in after our concert and talk to us, you know, Ironically, that was probably the biggest point of connection I could ever have with an individual like that because I know that if we opened our mouths and started talking about things that we believed or even maybe valued, uh, we'd probably just have nothing but, you know, be on opposite sides of issues and ideas. But that human existence of struggle, that's what we all get. And that's why um, encouraging students to recognize that they're the authors of their story and that there's value for sharing their story, um, whether that's through songwriting and videos or slam, whatever it takes to help them find a language that'll empower them as authors, that's what I'm all about. Not too long ago, I finished a session in a school and I, the class was leaving the room and I had this 11-year-old poet come up to me as her class was filing out. And she shared this poem with me. She said, do you want to read it? And I always resist uh, reading poetry from students because I want them to hear their own words in their own voice because it's such a powerful experience. And so I said, well, could you read it to me? And I, it was one of those moments where I had to like really uh, bear down emotionally for myself so I didn't fall apart. The poem was so gut-wrenching to me. And honest, and uh, I, 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 I shared it with the principal. Principal's like, yeah, this is too intense. We can't let them share it, you know, at the assembly because there's littler kids and they can't have it, and it might embarrass the family and whatever. And I was like, okay, like I get all of those concerns. I also think I also think it really sucks where a student could be going through something like what they're going through write a poem find a language to be able to articulate it share it in this safe environment or what should be a safe environment you know in school and then be like yeah you can't share the that hair that's out of bounds so bottle it up go home you know not dealing so i came back and uh i recorded a video of myself just reading out i'd like to share it with you now I feel like I'm getting stabbed in the chest from all the pain gathering up from other people and throwing it all on me. Ugly, gross, friendship breaker. It hurts deep down, but I act like I don't even feel it. I try to make my friends feel better, but it never means anything to them because they aren't even like me. I hardly know anyone who cares how I feel, and I always care for them. I don't even feel appreciated for who I am as a person. I've gone through a whole lifetime of shit, whole bloodline of ten years. Things have happened and nobody even knows it. Nobody. Just, nobody knows it. People that don't even know you call you things that aren't even true. That's all I have for you. years old you know it was a it was a different school um, different student in a different school year later or so who wrote this amazing slam poem because uh, they admitted to themselves that they were depressed and that unlocked their emotions and they found a voice and they wrote this slam poem and they got up And they performed it in their class, and it was amazing. They were proud of their writing and their performance, as was their teacher, as was I. And we did a a poetry slam that they were allowed to, you know, they were one of the performers. And at the end of the week, I just took my camera around from classroom to classroom in our last session, and I interviewed a number of different students just in class uh, who I felt had had a significant experience, or maybe they felt that they'd really had a significant experience that weekend, or maybe their teachers told me, and she was one of them. And I asked her, I, you know, i just like, so what was the experience like for you? Because honestly they'd written the first slam that they'd written was really stupid and goofy and terrible. And then they, they turned around and they said, uh, you know, like the next day they put their hand up to read again. And I'm like, you got a different one from yesterday? And she's like, yeah, yeah, totally. And they got up and it was amazing. And so I asked them, I said, what what happened? It's like, well, I just realized I was depressed and I allowed myself to write about that. And I thought her interview along with the slam itself was amazing. And so I, I included her little interview as part of the video that I made for the school. Only I wasn't allowed to share a story. And I'm going to make a huge assumption, but I'm pretty sure it was because They ran it by her parents, and her parents weren't comfortable with her talking about depression. Because why? Kids can't be depressed? Kids can't find themselves emotionally overwhelmed, uh, feeling unequipped to deal with the pressures and stresses of life? Like, we've all heard that saying, if they're old enough to ask the question, they're old enough to hear the answer. Well, she was old enough to write about it. She was old enough to experience it. She was old enough to slam it, to talk about it, to share the intention and the emotion behind it. And her interview wasn't graphic, and it didn't divulge personal details. She just talked openly about her struggles the best way she was able. And I thought it was amazing. The principal agreed it was powerful. And the parents say, no way. And, okay fair. It's your daughter. uh, daughter. I total, total respect. But I grew up in a box where appearances were more important than any struggle you may have been having. And keeping up the appearances, that that box was everything you needed to get through life was the priority. Even though it wasn't. For anyone. And I realized as I sat down to do this podcast that I experience these stories with others because my own creative journey as an artist, as a musician, and slam poet, and media producer. As I look at the progression of my life, I realize. Man, uh, none of us will ever be free of the figurative boxes that constrain or comfort us in this crazy world. But the progression through the maze has left me feeling connected to so many people I have little to nothing in common with, except for pain and loneliness and struggle and disappointment. Basically the emotional foundation of personal growth and development. And it's these moments that are so uncomfortable to talk about that are the ones that provide such a rich opportunity to connect and transcend these stupid boxes and the roles and labels that are used to keeping us separated and fighting and everything else that socials kind of are so effective at doing. So, you know, you know that I define creativity as that process of using our talents and gifts and abilities and education and experience to face the challenge in our life and find solutions, because being creative is a mindset. It's a a lifestyle that produces an energy that empowers resiliency and, and the confidence to face the challenges that life throws at us, and that process that's what creates momentum. And it's that momentum or the lack of it that I want to share with each one of you through these episodes. Cause man, none of us are alone. We, we, we can be siloed off in our little worlds or our little ideologies or ideas, uh, I'm just thankful for a journey and a conversation that's allowed me to stray beyond my comfort zone, that's allowed me to be that sacrilegious uh, spirit in the embryonic soup and and still 30 years after I've left this little town be called the same (laughs) things by the same uh, gatekeepers uh, that we're calling me names back when I lived there. I love that. I think that some things are... It, to not lose that uh, is also a success for me, for the people that, you know, were the gatekeepers over those boxes trying to keep me, uh, trying to take me out for coffee and drive me around and tell me, no, no, you have a gift and you're disappointing God by using it. And, well, what should I do? Well, I don't know, get a different gift <laughs> or something. Uh, the asinine stupidity of... Uh, box-orientated life. Hey, all five of you, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It went a little bit longer than normal. uh, Feel free to leave a comment or ask a question and remember, I hope you remember this, you are capable of infinitely more than you ever give yourself credit for. But if I know you, I'm going to give you credit for it, okay? I'm going to give you infinitely more credit than you've ever been given because you're amazing and I love you and I'll talk to you next time.